Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, concerns about coronavirus grow around the country and in Minnesota. An important heart health update, and Big Ten Commissioner Kevin Warren visits the U of M campus. But first, the second full week of the 2020 legislative session was an intense one at the state capitol, with Republicans and Democrats firming up battle lines on a number of high-profile issues. MNN's Bill Werner joins us with a recap. Scott, the Democrat-controlled Minnesota House this week passed two bills that have virtually no chance of moving forward in the Minnesota Senate. What do we want? Background checks. What do we want them? Supporters outside the House chamber as lawmakers debated a bill to expand background checks on gun sales, plus what's termed a red flag law. That would allow law enforcement to ask for a court order to take guns away from those judged a danger to themselves or others. Kate Haviland with the group Protect Minnesota. In Minnesota, 80% of the gun deaths are suicides. We're going to start tolling the bell downstairs. But Republican Representative Marion O'Neill from Maple Lake says current laws can address the problems without endangering Second Amendment rights. We have a 72-hour hold. That is a much better way to take someone away from a volatile situation, whether it be guns, knives, ropes, whatever, in their home that's of danger to them. Meanwhile, House GOP Minority Leader Kurt Dowd warned the background check bill infringes on the Second Amendment rights of law-abiding citizens, but does nothing to keep guns out of the hands of criminals. I'm sorry, Democrats, you are failing the people in your cities who are worried about violent gun crime. Democratic Majority Leader Ryan Winkler responded, We can confidently vote yes on this bill. It represents the uh, majority opinion of the state. 80 to 90 percent of Minnesotans want us to have universal background checks. Democrats say it will be an issue in the voting booth this November, and Republicans agree. House Speaker Melissa Hortman says in 2018, voters gave control of the Minnesota House to Democrats, largely, she says, on the gun issue. Minnesota senators were not on the ballot in 2018, and they are going to, during 2020, have some conversations with Minnesotans who cannot understand why we haven't already acted. But Republican Representative O'Neill says gun owners, not only in greater Minnesota, but also the Metro. They would disagree with that. They would say that they are going to show up, but they're going to show up in favor of those that are protecting their Second Amendment rights. And also this week, the Democrat-controlled Minnesota House passed a controversial insulin assistance package that would put a fee on drug makers, continuing their stalemate with the Republican-controlled Senate, which began in spring of 2019. Jaska Senator Scott Jensen urged, let's solve the problem, not punish insulin manufacturers. The Democratic side of the aisle feels that there should be some sort of punitive measure involved, pound of flesh, whatever. Democratic Representative Michael Howard from Richfield responds, it's not about punishing drug companies. This is about holding drug manufacturers accountable for their part and not just creating a crisis, but profiting richly from it. Governor Tim Walz applauded the House vote. Here we are in the second week. They promised to get it done. They did. I would encourage the Senate to follow suit. If there's a little bit of tweaking to get done, do that. But but don't fundamentally change what is going to help fix the problem. But the fundamental sticking point remains. Should insulin makers help pay for the program? Representative Howard says... If we do not hold manufacturers accountable for the price gouging that they're engaging, it will continue 
not just in insulin, but, but across the board. Let's call it a day, solve the problem, pass the legislation, and get it to the governor's desk. No punishment. Senator Jensen says pharma has agreed to supply free insulin to those who need it. But will they torpedo that plan before it passes the legislature, as happened last year? That's a valid question, but I don't think so. Why do you think they're not going to? Because I don't think they want to take me on. I'm a physician, I'm a senator, and I'm a free agent. Also this week, Governor Walls asked the legislature to designate at least $250,000 for farm safety programs in Minnesota, which would go for educational outreach, plus give farmers financial incentives to retrofit eligible tractors with rollover protection and invest in grain bin safety equipment. Among those supporting the move, Michelle Gran from Norseland in south-central Minnesota, her 18-year-old son Landon died last summer when he was caught in a grain bin auger. Our son's death cannot be in vain. Something good has to come out of this. And if we can save lives through some of these safety measures, I'm a mama on a mission. And it's not, I don't want to stop here in Minnesota. I want Minnesota to be the leader. Democratic Senator Nick Frentz from North Mankato says that measure has bipartisan support. We talk to legislators all the time about this work, and I have yet to meet a legislator who says they oppose it on either side of the aisle. The state still has a budget surplus, slightly larger at $1.5 billion, says the latest economic forecast that came out this week. Senate Republicans say with a surplus that big, Minnesotans should get back a billion dollars of it in the form of tax relief. But Governor Walls warns of long-term budget effects given that significant tax cuts were approved last year. What I don't want to do is repeat the mistakes that we've seen at the federal level where you give a tax cut that's unpaid that has trillion-dollar deficits, or what we witnessed in Minnesota where we went $6 billion in the hole. Senate Republican Majority Leader Paul Gazelka responds. I have a lot of uh, concern about the ongoing spending increases that automatically happen and how do we control our spending. And so there's two sides of that equation. Governor Walls says the $181 million increase in the state budget surplus since last November is in itself enough to pay for a robust bonding bill. And what about one larger than the $2 billion that he's proposed? I think it'll probably be hard to stretch a long ways, but I think they should be willing to listen. In both the House and Senate, the majority parties need help from the minorities to pass a bonding bill. House Republican leader Kurt Doubt. Is there a chance we could go above a billion? There is a chance we could. Um, is there a chance it's near two billion? Probably not. House Democratic leaders are not saying how large their bonding proposal will be, but Hermantown Democrat Mary Murphy has floated a whopping $3.5 billion figure. She warned Minnesota House members this week not to dawdle with their requests. If you're sitting around just thinking about things you could ask for state money in the Capital Investment Committee, forget it. <laughs> just forget it. Republican Minority Leader Kurt Dowd asked, Do you think if it was me, you might be able to find it in your heart to still hear that bill? <laughs> I will hear your bill if it's at two minutes to midnight on the last night when we've had 40 bills before yours. I will hear your bill. <laughs> and that, Scott, is how lawmakers bring home the bacon at the Minnesota legislature. Thank you for that report, Bill, and now I'm in the mood for bacon, so thanks for that, too. Minnesota Matters returns after this.
Welcome back to the dog show. Up next, we have Satchmo. Satchmo is a member of the shelter pet group. That's right, a group known especially for their couch snuggling, ball chasing, face licking, tail wagging, backyard hanging, and of course, companionship. And what breed would you say Satchmo is? I'd have to go with maybe a lavish terrier hound chihuahua looking kind of mix. Tremendous dog. Mm, I'd also like to point out Satchmo's coloring, a white, gray, brown, black brindle, simply marvelous. You know, it's such a treat to watch a dog like this. Now, let's see him in action. Look how he makes eye contact with his person. That's actually known as the treat stare. How intuitive. And now he appears to be excitedly turning in circles. Ah, oh, the happy dance, so common with this group. And finally, the loving face lick. It's great how he just gets in there and, well, licks. Fantastic. But really, the best way to know an amazing shelter pet like Satchmo is to meet one. Visit theshelterpetproject.org today. Adopt. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The state health department is encouraging Minnesotans to form a plan in case of a possible coronavirus outbreak. Tasha Radel has more. Health officials say a coronavirus outbreak in the U.S. appears inevitable, saying it's not a question of if this will happen, but when. Here in Minnesota, there have been four people tested for possible coronavirus, but all have tested negative. Joining me now is Infectious Disease Director Chris Ayersman with the State Department of Health. Chris, I know you're encouraging families to form a plan for a possible outbreak. Where are we at in preparing for this? You know, we've been focused um, very much on, and we continue to be focused, it's sort of a dual approach, but we're continuing to focus on containment. So what I mean by that is in the United States, you know, as cases are identified or as individuals who have traveled to high-risk areas return, you know, we're asking them um, to be isolated and to, you know, not be engaged with the community. And that's really in an attempt to um, you know, reduce the opportunity for transmission and um, to slow down the potential for spread in this country so that there's more time to kind of be prepared and um, make sure all of our systems are in place. But at the same time that we're doing that, we recognize that globally the situation is changing and we're seeing far more widespread transmission um, or more transmission, I should say, globally. And so we want to make sure that we're kind of expanding um, our recommendations to the public that there are some things that we can all do to help prepare ourselves. And so um, even as we've been focusing on reaching out to our healthcare partners and our local public health partners, um, we now want to be thinking about the community and so doing more outreach to businesses, um, to talk more with schools, and then to give families ideas of what they can do um, to be prepared. And so what that, what that really means is if you're a business, you know, do you have plans so that, um, you know, your staff could telework in a situation where maybe you don't want them to come into work and, you know, spread, spread anything? Or um, if you're a parent, you know, what if your daycare provider was ill and couldn't provide care? Do you have some backup plans for that? Um, do you have plans, if, you know, ideas of how you would care for someone um, at home who was sick? Um, just, just sort of general common sense things like that. Um, and, and in addition to that, our, me our messages about hand washing remain completely relevant and, and really an important part of, um, you know, reducing transmission of any type of respiratory virus. So we're really kind of expanding the messages and, and, and saying to people, you know what, um, 
just start thinking, start having some conversations about, you know, well, what kind of, you know, where am I at with my medication supply for my prescriptions, you know? Um, do we maintain a, you know, a reasonable amount of um, non-perishable food items so that, you know, if we were feeling sick, we didn't have to go to the store, um, that type of thing. So um, not, not really earth-shattering, but, but very common sense. And, and we think that now is the time to kind of have people start thinking about that. And, and Chris, you know, people were asking me here at work, and it got me thinking, um, you know, is there a big difference between the coronavirus and the influenza, seasonal influenza? Like when, when, um, a, when a patient gets sick, like I, th- I think someone was wondering, is the coronavirus way worse than influenza? Oh, sure. Well, that's actually a really good question. Um, and there's a couple of things, kind of considerations. One is that um, based on the information that we currently have, the coronavirus kind of presents with a wide range of um, of clinical presentation. So, you know, from very mild to moderate to more severe, and, and obviously there have been deaths. So we're seeing kind of a wide range of things. And that that's what we see with influenza as well. Um, but I think the reason, just to put it in perspective, the reason why we're taking this, you know, seriously and perhaps with what people might perceive as kind of more energy than we do with seasonal flu is because this is a virus that is the entire human population is naive to. No one has had any experience with it. So unlike flu where, you know, you may have had influenza last year or as a child, and that provides some sort of residual low-level cross-protection for influenza going forward, um, we don't have that in our population. We don't have a vaccine, and we don't have any antiviral drugs that we can use to treat this at this point. So um, while there may be similarities, um, we're treating it differently because it is differently because of the, its newness and the fact that we don't have options in terms of vaccine or treatment drugs. Perfect. Well, that makes lots of sense. And, and, and moving forward, I keep calling it coronavirus, Chris. Are, are we still saying that or should I be saying the COVID-19? I'm just kind of uh, curious. Don't feel bad because I have to keep schooling myself. But the, 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 so we, call, we started to call this coronavirus. That yep. was kind of the name that we were all using. And then um, the World Health Organization did officially name it. So the disease is called COVID-19, C-O-V-I-D-19, and the virus itself is now being referred to as SARS-CoV-2. So, you know, two, two ways to talk about this. Um, and and we, we at the health department are trying to make sure we're using the scientific names, but we do know that the public recognizes novel coronavirus. That's what they started to hear initially. Gotcha. Okay. I just wanted to make sure that I was saying it right. So, all right. Anything else you wanted to add uh, that I didn't bring up today, Chris? Um, we just want people, to, we want people to be aware that we at the public health level are continuing to plan at, at the national, at the state, and at the local level. Um, and now we're asking them to be a part of that and to start thinking about what they um, could do to be prepared um, if we, and likely when we see um, cases in the United States. Thanks again to my guest, Chris Ayersman, Infectious Disease Director with the Minnesota Department of Health. For more information on COVID-19, you can head to the health department's website at health.state.mn.us. 
Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Heart disease awareness has been in the spotlight lately. Reporter J.W. Cox has more about one specific kind of heart-related illness that may just be flying under the radar. Scott, it's known as HVD, heart valve disease, and it affects 11 million Americans, many of whom had no idea what the disease was before their diagnosis. Lindsay Clark is a vice president for the Alliance for Aging Research, and she says they are trying to shine a light on HVD so the public and health professionals stay vigilant for early detection of what is a treatable condition. Well, I think it's important to start by understanding that awareness about heart valve disease is low. So people, when they think about heart disease, they often think about heart attack or congestive heart failure or even the um, conditions that can lead to heart disease, like high blood pressure. But they don't often think about heart valve disease, which is a common type of heart disease. Um, We actually did some research a few years ago and found that three out of four Americans know little to nothing about heart valve disease. And this is despite the fact that we know as many as 11 million Americans have it. Now, out of those 11 million Americans, what's the breakdown of people that we know are more affected by HVD? Well, older adults are more affected. So age is the leading risk factor for heart valve disease. You can be born um, with a heart damage that can lead to problems later in life, but generally it develops over time from wear and tear or infection or even from certain types of uh, radiation for certain types of cancer. But age is the major risk factor, and we know that 1 in 10 people over the age of 75 suffer from moderate to severe heart valve disease. Once this message of awareness gets out and older adults begin to consider they may have been affected by HVD, what do they need to be on the lookout for in their own lives? Well, I think they need to pay attention to those risk factors that we just mentioned, Um, but it's also important to know the symptoms. So for heart valve disease, it involves damage to one or more of the heart's four valves, um, and that damage to the valves Um, makes it harder for the heart to pump blood um, through the heart into the rest of the body. So that can lead to symptoms like shortness of breath, dizziness or fainting, um, pain or discomfort in the chest. And then uh, as the disease progresses, it can lead to swelling in the abdomens and the feet and ankles. Is there a segment of the people affected by HVD that may not know that they're affected, have no symptoms, or are there always outward signs? Some people don't actually have symptoms. Um, So for those people, the most important clue that they have heart valve disease is a heart murmur, and that's an irregular heart sound that that doctors can hear when they listen to your heart with a stethoscope. So people really need to understand the symptoms and pay attention if they think they're experiencing them, but also they should be seeing their healthcare professional regularly and having their heart listened to. It seems like some of those symptoms on their own may just seem run-of-the-mill or part of the aging process, and they might be dismissed. How can people experiencing those symptoms know the difference? Well, that's a really important point. I mean, things like it's just harder getting up the stairs, right, or getting out to my mailbox or just feel tired. It's easy to dismiss that as aging, something that we should just accept. But it's really important that people pay attention to their bodies, and if something's changed, that they bring that up at their next visit with their healthcare professional. We've talked a lot already, Lindsay, about the patients and raising that side of the awareness equation. Are there steps that need to be taken by the medical community at large to be able to address the rising number of people affected by HVD? 
Well, I don't think, honestly, that everyone has their heart listened to at every visit, unfortunately. I mean, doctors are aware of heart valve disease, obviously, but they we need to make sure that we are having our hearts listened to regularly. It's really easy, um, and we do need to make sure and be advocates for our, our health. And so if they aren't listening, that we ask them to. All right, so let's say the campaigns are successful. Doctors are listening to hearts. Patients are listening to their bodies. And HVD is detected in an early stage. What's the outlook for someone who discovers that they have HVD and they get into a doctor and seek treatment? Fortunately, heart valve disease can usually be successfully treated in patients of all ages. So uh, being aware of our symptoms and our risk factors and having our hearts listened to is really important because early detection is really the key to successful outcomes. For people who have concerns about the potential of HVD affecting their lives, is there a place, Lindsay, they can go to get more good information? direct people if they want to learn more about valve disease, that they can learn more at valvedeaseday.org. That website again, valvedeaseday.org. Scott, back to you. Thank you, JW. We'll be back with more Minnesota Matters after this. Adopt U.S. Kids presents Multiple Choice Parenting. Your daughter just had her first breakup. Do you A, put yourself in her shoes, how could he do this to you? And for Sheila, she, she has split ends. B, console her. Oh, sweetie, this is going to happen a lot. Four, maybe five more times before you get married. C, take charge. Got to get this all straightened out. Keep a little talking to, man to man, mano a mano. Hey, Steve. Is now a good time? No? Okay, no problem. Bye. Or D, help her find a new boyfriend. I know a great place to meet boys. The internet. Nice, single, boys. Never mind. How about some ice cream? As a parent, there are no perfect answers. But you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. For more information on how you can adopt, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The new commissioner of the Big Ten Conference was on the U of M campus this past week. Kevin Warren says he was happy to be back in Minnesota after having been with the Vikings in various leadership roles since 2005. He's been with the Big Ten now since September and been in the full-time commissioner role since the first of the year. Warren, who says he's honored to be the Big Ten commissioner, outlines what he's seen so far on the job and his vision for the future of the Big Ten. There's been six commissioners, and so all the way back uh, to John Griffith, then to Tug Wilson, to William Reed, and Wayne Duke, uh, then Jim Delaney, and then myself. So I actually put their five portraits on the wall right when I walk into my office, just as a reminder of the one historical significance of this opportunity, but bigger than that is just to make sure that we do things the right way. So I'm glad to stand here before you um, and to be able to take that job coming from the, the Minnesota Vikings. I would also be important and be remiss if I didn't give the Will family uh, kudos to providing um, me, my wife Greta, our ki kids an opportunity to work here for 15 years and to, uh, for them to hire a, a black man to put him in a position in charge of an organization. I will forever be grateful with that. But to stand before you today is, is, really, is really special. And a couple of things that we've been working on. One, I made a commitment to, to conduct 14 town hall meetings uh, and so this is the third one. I started off at Indiana and then um, went to Iowa, and then now we're here. But I will have 14 town hall meetings uh, during the course of the year. I also made 
the decision to make sure I watch every single team in the Big Ten uh, compete. And there's 350 teams. And so we're on track. And so I've had a chance to see women's basketball, men's basketball, uh, water polo, synchronized swimming, pistol shooting. And so I'll be able to put my eyes on every team over the course of the year just to show, one, my commitment, and two, to learn. I've got a chance to spend some great time with the student athletes. A couple items in my kind of platform that are really important is number one is making sure we take care of our student athletes. That's first and foremost, is just to make sure that our student athletes are at the center of all our decisions, whether it's the college football playoff expansion, name, image, and likeness, um, you know, scheduling. But just any of those issues is that we got to make sure that our student athletes are at the epicenter of all of our decisions. And we've done a good job so far in the Big Ten in doing that. And under that um, heading is I want to make sure that our student athletes are uh, taken care of. And so we're in the process of working on the most comprehensive mental health and wellness platform uh, to make sure that we really educate, embrace, and empower our student athletes. Uh, secondly, we're, we're working on voter registration to make sure our student athletes, everyone who wants to be registered to vote, has an opportunity to be registered to vote. And then also we want to make sure that they're financially literate. So we're working on a financial literacy platform. So all these things will start to get rolled out some point in time during the summer, and especially as we go into the fall semester. So that's one of my first pillars. Uh, the most important pillar is to make sure that we really take care of our student athletes in the Big Ten. Secondly, we need to make sure that we continually build a financially robust conference and have financially robust institutions so we can do all the things that we need to do. Uh, thirdly, is build relationships with our constituents. There's 166 Fortune 500 companies in the Big Ten footprint. Now, we're fortunate because we're a conference that's contiguous. We go from Nebraska to New Jersey, and we have a large portion of, you know, the middle of America, of uh, the Midwest. But we go from the Midwest all the way through the eastern seaboard. There are a lot of great corporations there. We need to build those relationships for business purposes, but also for internships for our, our student-athletes, which is really important. The other thing that's important is uh, as we start kind of growing uh, our conference is to make sure that we do everything we possibly can to enhance the fan experience. Uh, it's becoming more and more challenging for people to uh, attend any sporting events, one just with parking, ingress and egress, the cost, all those different things. So we want to make sure that our environments are safe, uh, they're healthy, uh, we're focused on the fan and that they're excited to be able to come and to, to watch our teams participate. But to be able to stand before you as commissioner of the Big Ten Conference, I without question have no doubt that we are the finest uh, conference in all of college sports. We have the best blend of academics and athletics. We have 10,000 student athletes. And when you think about that, that's something that I pray on. I pray for all of our student athletes every morning on my knees and every night before I go to bed. And when you think about the number of professional baseball players, hockey players, uh, basketball players, NFL players, soccer players, if you add them all up, it still doesn't add up to 10,000 you know, athletes. We have 10,000. Uh, we have to keep in mind that our student athletes, they're not professionals. Uh, they are amateurs. Uh, they're in intercollegiate athletics. And we need to make sure that we provide them with an opportunity to grow uh, to learn, to get a world-class education at one of our 14 world-class institutions. That's Big Ten Commissioner Kevin Warren, who's considered by many to be one of the most powerful men in college athletics. He was on the U of M campus this past week, still spends a lot of time in Minnesota. 
That's going to do it for our show this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.